Welcome to Indie Dotes, the podcast that shares the stories of independent creators. I'm your host, Susan Bond. Today on the show, I have Sean Griffin. Sean is a Rails committer and the creator of Diesel. Welcome to the show. Hello. Well, you and I actually um, officially met. We've kind of been in each other's spheres, but we officially met at RubyConf recently. Uh, my first RubyConf ever, actually. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super fun. I was always afraid to go because I thought, oh, I'm not a software developer, so people are going to ask me and then I'm going to be embarrassed when I'm not or they're not going to want to talk to me, which, of course, did not happen. But, you know, that was my fear. Right. I'm human. Sure. <laughs> uh, but it was really fun. So can you tell us a little bit about what Diesel is and what it does? Sure. So Diesel is an ORM and query builder for Rust. And if you're unfamiliar with those terms, an ORM, ORM stands for Object Relational Mapper. So it's a thing that uh, deals with database connections, uh, takes, the, takes the data that the database gives you, and then maps that into data structures in the language that you're trying to work in. And then a query builder is a thing that you use to, cons to dynamically construct your SQL queries. Normally, if you're just using um, some, some, some database client library directly, or even some ORMs, you always just uh, execute, you, you give it a string, which represents your entire SQL query, it executes that, and then maybe maps that to uh, appropriate data structures, maybe not. Um, Diesel's probably a little bit unique in terms of things that call themselves ORMs, in that uh, the ORM part of Diesel's very secondary, and Diesel tries to focus more on being a query builder. Hmm. You just released the 1.0 version a few days ago, right? We're in early January 2018. Yep. January 2nd. January 2nd, okay. You released it on January 2nd, but it was three years in the making. A little, a little less than three years, but yeah. A little less, um, okay. About. Yeah, I think I started working on it in like May. Okay. Of, uh, whatever year that was. Two years and three quarters. Yeah, <laughs> something, like, something like that. <laughs> a really long time. So that's what I want to talk with you in more detail about today. And I want to like, talk, take us back to the very beginning of this project and what sparked it. So I'd been interested in the programming language Rust. Um, it had just released 1.0. And even before it released 1.0, it was sort of in... It was something I was keeping an eye on because there are a lot of languages right now which are trying to solve the problem of shared mutable state. And most languages these days solve it by removing mutability. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was very interested in Rust just because it was the only language that uh, I had seen that was trying to fix that problem by removing sharing. So I was interested in it, if nothing else, then because it was just a novel approach to a problem everybody's trying to solve. Hmm. So, uh, so it was really like the idea that you wanted to do something so that you could like experiment with Rust. Well, I, so I did a different project to experiment with Rust because ah. Rust is um, pegged as a replacement for C. So it's a very low level language and not the sort of thing you would typically build an ORM in. Yep. Or at least that was my perception of it at the time. But uh, I was working on a 3D rendering engine for work. And um, so I tried porting that over to Rust just for... Uh, just for uh, fun, and the engine was in C++. And uh, one of Rust's big things is that it guarantees memory safety, so Rust applications should never segfault. Mm -hmm. And I ported the C++ code to Rust as 
directly as I could, and it wouldn't compile. And once I figured out how to make it work in Rust, I realized where this seg fault I was getting in the C++ code was coming from that I could not, for the life of me, track down. So it fixed a bug in the C++ code oh, without, wow. even, uh, without even having to ship the, the Rust version, which was neat. Um, <laughs> That's great. But uh, so over the course of doing that, you know, I, at that point, become sold on Rust as uh, a language I would use instead of C or C++ anytime I would consider using those. Unfortunately, I don't often consider using C or C++ because I I, that's just not the space I work in. But when, uh, when I was working on that project, I started to realize just how deep Rust's type system was, and it reminded me a lot of another language uh, I like called Haskell. Mm. So I started to get really curious of, can Rust work as a higher-level language? Could it be a reasonable language to use in a space where you might consider using Haskell or Ruby or Python. So then I started looking at uh, what libraries are missing, and I didn't see much in the way of ORMs. An ORM is, I was originally planning on building a whole web framework, because to me, high level means web. Um, and this was just going to be the first part of the web framework, but then instead of building a web framework, I had a baby instead. Um, <laughs> Build a web framework or have a baby. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the, so but that was gonna be my goal was I was gonna I was gonna try building a web framework and see if I could build something that I found pleasant to use in Rust for web development, and that was gonna answer the question: Can Rust work as a high level language? And so that was why I started working on Diesel. Oh, interesting. Okay, so. This is, uh, so this is like the beginning, like, so where did you start with it? Like when you started to go to say, okay, I have this question I want to answer. Where did you begin building? Um, select star from users, which is about the simplest SQL <laughs> query you can write. And why did you start there? I know that might be a dumb question. Uh, no, I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's the short of actually, I think, it might, actually, hold on. Uh, I can, uh. I can go to the original commit and, and tell you exactly what it started on. It might have been select ID from users. Either way, it was something that was a very, very, very simple query to build and forced a lot of the groundwork. Yeah, I write, I write very detailed commit messages, so it's always fun actually going back to the original commits and like reading uh, what my thought process was at the time and laughing at how wrong I was on a lot of things. Oh. Wait, what, wait, I'm so curious, what, like, why do you write such detailed commits? Um, so whenever I'm trying to figure out why something is the way it is, I want some documentation of that. And I could put that in a code comment, but code comments, by their very nature, get out of date. The code changes, right? Um, and the comments don't. Or even if the comments don't get out of date, they might become wrong. Like the code might continue to be unchanged for a different reason than it was written that way in the first place. But a commit message uh, is very specifically something that documents um, a specific line of code at a specific point in time. Yeah. So uh, by, by writing very, very long commit messages, it serves as documentation for when I'm looking at, when I'm trying to figure out why is this code written this way, and I go, I go into git blame uh, and read the commit message, number one, it'll, ans it'll answer that. And then number two, now it's just for this project in particular, incredibly entertaining to read them now. 
Wait, and, and this might be, again, a dumb question, but do you think everyone writes this detailed of commit messages, or is this your particular thing? Oh, no. I mean, uh, it's not my particular thing, but it's not a common thing. It's it. it's a thing I rant about a lot on the internet, that people should write longer <laughs> commit messages. Um, For entertainment and to go back in time to understand why something is the way that it is? Yeah. Uh, and, did I get that right? <laughs> yes. Yes. So other people can figure out why you wrote the code a certain way. Um, now, an important thing to keep in mind is when I was writing these first commits, I had no intention of ever shipping diesel. I didn't know if it was going to be a thing worth shipping, and I didn't expect at the time that anybody else was ever going to be looking at this code. But when I say other people, other people includes you next week. Right, right. Like future you. You know, yeah. like three weeks you who's going, what were you thinking? Um, or what was that about? That's actually really interesting because I was wondering whether you had built, that was a question I was going to ask, whether you built this, you know, to ever show to the public and you're saying no. Well, not so much no, but more maybe. Maybe, got it. But it wasn't a slam dunk. Like, I'm building this for public consumption. It right. It was a, like, maybe if if the answer to can, can Rust work in this space, if that answer turns out to be yes, then, then and, and I'm happy with what I built, then I'll ship it. It wasn't a for sure, but it was a, it was a maybe. Yeah. Um, okay, so go to, can we, did you find that commit message? Yes, so I found the first commit. And so the very first thing I, I did was uh, just write a thing that runs select star from users. Um, and this was really actually not even the query builder. Oh, no, this was the query builder, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so this was literally a thing where uh, I, I, I built a class called connection and made it so you could pass a table into it, and then that would execute select star from that table and uh, load that into a struct. Uh, and, that, and that forced the initial um, framework for how connections get established, uh, uh, how deserialization works at the very, very highest level. Um, interestingly, it's interesting looking at this, of the code that I wrote in the very first commit, how much of it has not changed at all. <laughs> oh, really? Does that surprise you? Um, a little bit, because these are things that are like architect major architectural structures. I mean, some mm. of the specifics about them have changed, but like uh, there's a there's a trait called queryable, and looking at uh, queryable compared in uh, compared to the very first commit compared to how it is in 1.0. Um, number one, I spelled it with a Y instead of an I. <laughs> I was spelled with an I in the first commit, and somebody pointed out, no, that should be a Y. Um, <laughs> it's a little more generic because we support more than just Postgres. At the time, we only supported PostgreSQL. Uh, and then it has a bound on a trait called from SQL row now, where that trait was called from SQL in, uh, in, in the first commit. But like those are all really, really minor changes. Yeah. And the over it's just funny, the actual structure of this thing, which is a very core piece of diesel, has not changed at all since the very first commit. So that's... That's interesting. Yeah, what do you make about that now that we're like now that we're looking at your commits? What do you make about the fact that it hasn't changed substantively? Substantially. Uh, I mean, I guess it means that it's a reasonable it's a reasonable structure. Um, I always find it funny because uh, this trait is actually useless. It is in, so I said it has a bound on a thing called from SQL row. It's in, in fact entirely redundant with from SQL row. We could completely remove queryable and not lose any functionality. Um, but uh, this was a thing that was like 
little more reasonable to implement yourself because this thing from SQL row, you have to take a structure that represents a database row and figure out how to deserialize that into the right types to build your, your data structure. Whereas the, uh, uh, queryable just says, hey, here's a data structure that um, also works for the same query that you already know how to deserialize. So deserialize it into that, and then I'm going to transform it from that into my type. And so it's a little, it's a, it's a little easier to write, to write manually. So what was the next, we won't go through all your commits. No, of course not. <laughs> but, but what's the, what was like sort of, were the, the, the next commits pretty, sm you know what I mean? Like were they? Uh, the first commits were much larger than my commits tend to be now. Yeah. Um, uh, just because I, by definition, like the next step was so far from where I was. So like the second, uh, the second commit then was adding the ability to specify the select clause. So in the first commit, the only select clause you could have was star. Second commit now you can specify like I just want this column or the or this other column or the these these collection uh, these collections of columns, um, and the commit message is kind of funny because. Uh, it says, it says here, I attempted to have from SQL imply queryable. However, I received an error about conflicting implementations. And now if you look at the code base, there's like tons of comments about, Sean, next time you think you've made a breakthrough about, uh, about making from SQL imply from SQL row and then from SQL row imply queryable, here are all of the reasons we can't do that. And it's never going to happen. Stop trying. <laughs> um, and then in the upcoming 1.1 release, I finally just added, like, you put one line above your struct, you say derive from SQL row, and that'll implement from SQL row and queryable for your struct. Uh, but, uh, it's just so funny. And I'm convinced in this commit message, like, and this is just a thing that I can't figure out how to solve because I'm not experienced enough with Rust yet, but I'm going to figure out how to solve it. And no, no, it was never solved. It's, it's unsolvable. Isn't it fascinating as you go along, you think, oh, I just don't understand this thing yet, this context, this language, this whatever. And later you come to realize like, oh, no, actually it's unsolvable or it's just a whatever yeah. a part of this. It's a, if a nothing feature. else, it requires changes to the language. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fascinating. Thank you for reading your commit messages to me. That's, <laughs> I, I, that's the first time anyone's ever read commit messages to me on the show, and I love it. I think people are going to enjoy to hear what your first couple commits were. Um, and then also what you said to yourself. At what point did you think, you know, maybe, did the maybe start to become, oh, maybe, no, I'm actually going to, this might be useful for other people. You know, or when did it start sure. to become useful even for you? Um, I'm trying to think when it got to the point where I, where I decided the answer to can Rust work as a high level language became yes. Um, yeah. There was a point where, I think it was actually very early on. So if you if you look at um, Active Record, the the ORM that ships with Rails, uh, when you pass a column name to to the select function there, you pass it as a symbol, um, which indicates to Rails that this is a column, as opposed to if you pass a string, we're just going to assume that that's that's actual SQL. Um, and so I was thinking about how to do the, the equivalent thing in Rust. And I had the idea of, well, what if we generate um, unique types to represent every single column and represent your entire database schema in Rust's type system? 
Uh, and so then it ended up being, oh, cool. So what what ends up, uh, what we end up with is an API that looks in a, a lot like Active Record, but you just remove all of the colons. Uh, and then that was when I started to realize that I could um, actually represent the entire SQL query in the type system and at compile time determine whether or not the query was valid or whether it could potentially error when it goes to the database. And so around the around that time is when the focus of the project shifted of just like be an ORM. Because one of the things that I was very focused on from the beginning was I didn't want to just like port active record to Rust. I wanted to build an ORM that was true to what Rust was. And so I think it was around the time that I realized, oh, I can represent your database schema in the type system that um, I decided, well, what an ORM means for Rust is a very safe ORM. And so in this case, I'm going to make it a very type safe ORM. And I'm going to attempt to make an ORM that um, validates all SQL queries at compile time and never results in a runtime error. So when you, when you made, when you realized that this could become, you know, something that bigger than just, you know, for you, you know, that yes to that question, you know, how did that influence or change what you did in building it? Well, so I immediately at that point decided, all right, I need an app. Because uh, I think that good libraries aren't built in a vacuum. They're built based off of the needs of a real-world application. The problem was I didn't have a web application <laughs> in <laughs> Rust that I was working on. Luckily, there was exactly one that I knew of, which was uh, the website for our package repository, crates.io. Mm. Around the time where I decided, all right, I'm going to try and actually make this as a thing that is useful for other people, was around that uh, of the time I'm like, all right, I'm going to make crates.io use diesel. It was not called diesel at this point in time. It was called YAQB, yet another query builder. YA, um, oh, got it. Okay, got it. <laughs> There's also Yoff, yet another web framework, which never shipped. Okay, we'll get into the naming, how it got named Diesel later. I'm curious. Sure. Okay, cool. Got it. Okay. Uh, and I was never planning on shipping, like, the port of crates.io over to Diesel. Um, that was just a thing that was there as a tool for me so that I could write, you know, take, take this real-world code, use Diesel for it, and decide what I like, what I don't like, what APIs I need. Crates.io uses much more of, of the capabilities of the database than I expected, hmm. which was surprising because if you, the, like the Ruby equivalent, rubygems.org, is in terms of like what it's doing with the database, a very simple application. But it was a very good thing because it led to just all kinds of features uh, ending up in Diesel that never, that never would have uh, happened otherwise. Hmm, um, that's nice. Like, for example, whenever they are looking up a crate, a, a package in Rust is called a crate. And whenever they're looking up a crate by its name, they canonicalize the name, which basically means lowercasing everything and converting any hyphens into underscores. Uh, but rather than do that client side, they do that in the database. They have a, they have a, a function in SQL, a, a custom user-defined SQL function called canon crate name. And so whenever they need to look up a crate by its name, it's always uh, canon crate name, crates.name equals canon crate name, whatever you're passing in. Uh, and so because they do that, like Diesel's Query Builder supports arbitrary user-defined SQL functions. And that turned out to be a really, really uh, useful thing for us because what that meant was 
we no longer have to have built-in support for every single uh, SQL function out there because if there's a function that we don't support out of the box, we have a really, really lightweight, a really, really lightweight way to define new SQL functions just in your application. I love those those happy discoveries, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh wow, I didn't expect that. Yeah. So, when did you? At this point, are you like when did when did you start thinking about? 1.0, right? And I think of like 1.0 when I when I'm say what I say what I mean by that is for public consumption, right? Or to share more widely. Uh, sort of. It it depends on who the public is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Good. 1.0 for me here meant something very specific, which I think most people in Rust will agree upon, which is that uh, our API is now stable. Mm. So Rust as a community, follows semantic versioning very well. Um, and so in semantic versioning, when you have 1.0, you cannot make a breaking change without changing your version to 2.0. Uh, and I think there's this, in, there's this general assumption among the community that once you ship 1.0, you have no intention of shipping 2.0 anytime soon. Mm, got it. Whereas once it, when it's 0.x under Semver, you, you can do whatever you want. And so very much when it got to the point where we started to, to focus on, all right, let's get 1.0 out. Um, and at this point, at, at the point where 1.0 became the focus, Diesel was no longer a me, it was a we. Well, that's about the question I was about to ask. I'm like, you're saying we, who, <laughs> tell me about what happened, you know, like who these other folks are or other person is and how they got involved. Well, so uh, it's the core team. Uh, there are, so Diesel has two teams. We have a, uh, technically three, I guess. Uh, we have, we have uh, the core team, we have the committers team, and we have the reviewers team. The core team are the, the decision makers on the project. So any, any major decision about the direction that the project goes, the core team are the people who decide that. And there are three of us right now. Uh, the committers team are people who have the ability to commit code to the code base. Uh, we do have a policy that nobody commits code unless it's been reviewed by at least one other committer or core member. Or reviewer, actually. And then the reviewers are just people who do code review. Um, and the reviewers team, the way you get onto that is there's an issue, uh, an, an issue I have open that says more code reviewers wanted. And you comment on that issue, and then I add you to the reviewers team. So it, at what point did you start to involve people? And like, was it one person? I'm just really, I want to get really nerdy with sure. how it went from you to... And I assume, was it like, who was next? Was it someone to the core team, the committers, reviewers? Like, how did that work? Um, so it was, the, it was the core team. They're, the core team right now is like core team V2.0. None of the members of the original core team are still involved in the project. Mm, okay. Um, not for like any political reasons. It was just literally, it was very, very easy to get on the core team in the beginning. And they moved <laughs> on to other stuff. So the, the first member of the core team was a person who... <laughs> found the project before I announced it and tried to use it oh. <laughs> and made like three commits. I'm like, hi, welcome to the diesel core team. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it was probably a little later than that. But yeah, it was, it was just early on. It was like people who made any no sizable contribution to the project became members of the core team. Oh, great. Okay. Um, so there were, there were four of us in the, in the initial, in the initial uh, core team. Um, two of them were, had done major contributions to the project, and then one of them had added a code of conduct to the project and had put their email as, a, as the contact email. <laughs> and I didn't feel like bo uh, bothering to remove their contact email from it. So I'm like, well, you need to be an official representative of the project if you're going to be a contact for the code of conduct. Right. So 
This is so great because I, what I love about this is like I'm always curious like how this stuff happens, like how do core teams get formed. I mean, it's it's fascinating. I I, I believe other people would be interested too. So, at what point were the, those initial, you know, the person who found the project and made some commits? How far along were you when that happened? Uh, not very far at all. The project literally could not be used. Um, oh, okay. So that was pretty early on. It was found. Yes, I didn't. Well, sort of. Hold on, I can tell you the date. Because they open an issue. <laughs> uh, issues two, I guess. Nope. Three. Oh my God. Where, where is the first issue that isn't me? <laughs> I have a ton of issues that are like my own. Uh... Okay, here we go. Issue number five. So November 16th, 2015. This actually was right before our 0.1 release. Because our 0.1 release was November 27th. Yeah, so they were trying to use it, and it turned out that our test suite was inside of the same crate. So basically, our, 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 our test suite was part of the same package. And uh, Rust has rules about what you can and cannot do for, uh, for things that are in your package versus another package. So for example, Rust has a, a thing called traits, which are similar to interfaces in um, object-oriented languages or type classes in, in uh, ML family languages. And you implement traits for various types, but you, uh, the, Rust has the rule that you either, the, either the trait has to be local to your crate or the type has to be local to your crate. So I can't just go say, like, I'm going to implement this trait from some random crate for string. Because you can only implement a trait for a given t uh, type exactly once. And so if they just allowed people to do what's called an orphan implementation, implementing a trait that you don't own for a type that you don't own, multiple packages could do that. And if you tried to use those packages together, everything blows up. So they disallow that. But um, Diesel relied on basically orphan implementations existing. But I didn't realize that because our test suite was local to Diesel. So, that was, so, so we basically just moved our test suite into a set, like just a separate package called diesel tests and then fixed all of that. Uh, it took me almost a week to respond to this issue though, because I wasn't watching the repo because I didn't expect anybody to find it. Right. That must've been so, I don't know, odd, surprising. Yeah. I, right. It sounds like it grew fairly, the outside influence, like the, you know, the core team and committers, you know, having other folks, work with it was really organic. Yeah, I mean, once once we shipped 0 0.1, or once I shipped 0 0.1, because it wasn't I at that point. Once I shipped 0 0.1, I started to focus on growing the community. Mm, okay, got it. How did you do that? Well, so there's a number of ways. I mean, the first thing was just having a dedicated chat room to uh, from day one and a place that people could come ask for help. Um, trying to, you know, trying to generally be accessible. Um, there are things that I do more now that I didn't at back then that every project should do. But uh, so basically, if you have issues, there are going to be certain issues that are just easier than other issues. Uh, it's generally a useful thing to label those and not fix those issues yourself. And use those as like, hey, this is a very good issue to target if you're writing your first commit. Or also, we have another tag, mentoring available. So like, hey, this maybe isn't something I would expect you to do on your own for your first commit, but a member of the team is willing to mentor you on how to implement it. 
and both of those things help get help get an influx of people who do their first commit. Now the problem is, of course, there's going to be churn there. Uh, the vast majority of people uh, will commit to the project exactly once. Yep. And so that's that's why it's it's a thing that we didn't start doing until recently because we just didn't have the bandwidth for it. Especially especially if it's mentoring, even if it's not mentoring, for the easier issues, it usually takes more time to do code review and work with the committer to get their commit to the standards we need for it to be merged. Uh, it takes more time to do that generally than it would have for us to just fix the issue ourselves. Right. And because the majority of people commit exactly once, we have to have the bandwidth to be able to do that long enough to you know, then actually grow the team as a result of it. Right, because you're going to have a number of people who commit once and then go away. Right. So you're going to have to keep doing that. But it sounds to me, tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me like growing the community was important to you. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had some, um, some experiences with, with uh, the structure of Rails. And I decided pretty early on that I did not want this to be my project. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be the community's project. Why is that? Yeah, why is that? Well, I, I mean, I feel that's the case for open source projects in general. For projects that have a BDFL, benevolent, benevolent dictator for life structure, like you can say, yeah, no, this is my project. I'm going to make the decisions. But at a certain point, the community owns your project. It's no longer, it's no longer yours. I think that just is generally true of open source projects, and I wanted to represent that as early as I could in the governance of diesel. And now that it reminds me, when you're coming up with the, you keep saying diesel, can we go back to how you got that name? Because there were other names, right? Um, yeah. I'm curious about how that name came about. So I actually have no idea. <laughs> so I had an issue, uh, uh, like the week before we released, uh, I had an issue open, issue 16, name it. And people came and commented with a bunch of different names. The second comment on there is Diesel came to mind as an idea tonight. But I very specifically remember somebody else coming up with Diesel. This, this doesn't imply that. Because <laughs> I said it came to mind as an idea, which implies that I came up with it. But I feel like somebody else came up with it, but apparently not. I remember I originally wanted to call it Piston. I wanted to have uh, the engine theme be used for a web framework. Yep. But Piston is a name that was already taken. Got it. And so, you know, what, well, what made you eventually settle on diesel? Like, were, did you not, not like any of the other ideas or because it had an engine sort of feel to it? I mean, the comment I left, I don't remember. The comment I left at the time was diesel has stuck in my head as something easy to remember and not already too overloaded in the tech space. Now, what was hilarious was when then we decided to make a website, I realized that diesel.io was a domain that was taken. Uh-huh, yeah. And this is really a thing I should have looked at before, um, before naming it. And then uh, that one, you know, luckily Rust, given that its file extensions are .rs and there is a top-level domain, .rs, like Rust kind of gets a free pass there if the domain you want isn't available, because the, the, the RS domain is the national domain for the Republic of Serbia. Mm. So it's generally not a very populated domain, or, or GTLD. But then the other problem I realized was, I, I should have thought about how overloaded this, is this in not the tech space, because I'm going to want a Twitter handle for the project. Right, yep. This is, my head is already thinking about these things. 
There's a very popular clothing brand, which I didn't know of when I picked this thing. Oh, you didn't? No, I'd never heard of Diesel before. Got it. The yeah. Diesel, the clothing brand. Um, but, you know, so that made it difficult to, uh, to grab the, the Twitter domain or the Twitter handle. Even if, even if that clothing brand didn't exist, Diesel would have been taken on Twitter. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's so funny because my associations with Diesel are from childhood, actually, because my dad worked for GM. And mm. he did. He was a project engineer, he was a mechanical engineer, and he was working on diesel cars. And so I remember taking a vacation, and the car we were driving was a diesel. And I remember gas stations being really hard to find, and we rode with all the trucks because our t- car took diesel, not gasoline. Right. And so, you know, for me, it's it has like a, a nerdy feel to it. It has a car <laughs> feel for me, of course, right? But a, a nerdy feel to it. So, like, it has, like, I love the associations. Like, I think it's a great... I mean, have you seen our logo? I have. Actually, I'll get to the logo in one second. Uh, on, on, the, on the trucker thing, though, there's a, uh, there's a subreddit, rdiesel, which is for, you know, just diesel-powered trucks and cars and, and, and the like. Um, and I'd written a blog post, like, a year ago that I, I was going to publish to the Rust subreddit, and so I, but I was a little tipsy, and so I typed in rdiesel instead of rrust, and then I thought it would be really funny to submit it to the diesel subreddit. And now occasionally, if I'm just feeling extra trolly, whenever I write something about diesel, the, web fr- uh, the, the ORM, I'll submit it to the subreddit <laughs> for diesel-powered trucks and cars, just as a joke. Because uh, there's, a, there's a video game called Rust, and the Rust uh, programming language subreddit gets posts... Uh, that were meant for the Rust video game subreddit all the time. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. So, can we talk about your? Um, can we talk about your logo? Sure. So, tell everybody what your what your logo is like. Let's talk, and then let's talk about how you came about it. So, the logo is a red um, fuel can with curly braces on the side of it, and it's tilted at a 45-degree angle with a drop on the bottom. And if you hover over it on the website, it the drop falls and it kind of tilts a little bit more. I actually had not done that. I, I just did it. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it was meant to just be like, yeah, it's it's a fuel, but then it's code related because there's curly braces. Um, now, what's funny is uh, diesel cans ha- are a different color than petrol cans. Right. Um, now, I get comments all the time. They, they don't happen so much lately, but uh, especially when we first launched the website, every other comment I would get was, your can is the wrong color. But what's hilarious is the color they would say it should be was different for every single one. Oh, yeah? Because <laughs> it's a different color in basically every country. Although the one color, as far as I can tell, it is not in any country, is red. Um, that's funny, though, that, that none of them, it, it's not red in any country and that, that all the colors are different. Why did you come up with red? Uh, I didn't come up with the logo. In fact, I actually hated the logo originally. Oh, yeah? Okay. I didn't like it until I saw it on a sticker. Ooh. And who, crea- who created this logo? A uh, designer that I hired named Corwin Harrell. Why didn't you say, oh, I don't like this logo? No. Uh, I mean, I, so I did, I did say that, and then I saw it on a sticker. I'm like, actually, this is an amazing sticker. Ah, okay. So no, but I was, I was originally like, I thought diesel is so metal. This should be like a heavy metal logo. And I was imagining it just being like the word diesel, but with like a Metallica font. And this was very, very far from that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I like this better. No offense. Oh, no, I, I do too. <laughs> I mean, no, and it's funny. Like, I also didn't like the website design uh, when I first saw it either. 
but it grew on me. It grew on me over time. I think that happens a lot of times, right? Like we have this idea in our head and then somebody does something or, you know, takes that thought a little bit deeper and then we're like, oh, that is not what I was expecting. And it takes a minute to like reconnoiter around it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is also why it's important to have a, you know, healthy social network just in general, because the website design uh, I, I stuck with because I showed it to a bunch of different people in my, in my network and I was the only one who didn't like it. So I realized, well, I'm just wrong. That's, I think that's really great. Like, it, I think a lot of times someone might be really attached to it. You put a lot of effort in. Like, so at what point did you get the logo and like really do the website? What points in the project? Uh, we did that uh, to go along with the 0.5 release. Okay. Um, and I believe the 0.5 release. Let me double. Let me double check the change log. I love that we're. I love that we're going through your logs and your commits. This is so much fun. <laughs> okay, I did not. I did not mention the the website in the change log, but I'm pretty sure the website launched with the 0.5 release. Okay. Um, and this was so. This was February of 2016. So three. Uh, a little less than, uh, a little more than two. It was two months and one week, basically, after the initial release. That was, I, I, I think the reason we decided to do a website with this is this was the release where we added support for SQLite. Um, before that, we only supported Postgres. And I actually originally uh, intended to never support anything other than Postgres. Oh, interesting. I was very adamant that just, no, Postgres is the best database. You should be using Postgres. And uh, I got a bunch of issues that were like, hey, you should support MySQL because I prefer to use MySQL. And I would just close and be like, well, I prefer Postgres, so sorry. Well, okay, so wait, how did you finally change your mind? So somebody opened, so SQLite is different from other databases in that SQLite does not have a server. SQLite operates on files, and it's usually what, uh, embedded in your application. So what that means is you don't connect, there, there's no server running anywhere. It's like, I just need a database that's specific to my application. So, so this is what mobile apps use generally. And so somebody raised the point of, hey, Rust is a language that is going to be used for embedded use cases. And SQLite is literally the only option there. Ah. So I think that's a very, very valid use case for diesel supporting SQLite. I'm like, you know what? You're right. And that's uh, basically somebody made an argument that was more than just, I prefer X database to Postgres because I prefer it. Of course, then I end up caving and, and later supporting MySQL because, uh, you know, well, users. that's what I that's what I thought. I was like, wait, I thought you did. Okay, got it. Yeah, you, you users, did they make a case or did you just say, okay, I caved on something? Else? Um, I I just caved because of the the volume of requests. I've also backed off a little bit on everybody should be using Postgres and come to the realization that um, the database that you know how to tune properly is the database to use. So. Yeah. Our team knows MySQL, and we don't have the resources to train them on Postgres. is a uh, is a very valid reason to use MySQL. Some people think it's because I went to work for a company that uses MySQL almost exclusively, but um, I started working on Diesel right around the time I started working there, so that had nothing to do with it. Ah, got it. Okay. Um, but yeah, so so I think it was. I think we did the website and the logo for the zero point five release. That might just be a coincidence, though. I, I if I remember correctly, I wanted the logo because RailsConf was coming up and I wanted some stickers. It all goes back to stickers with you, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, stickers are the way that programmers communicate. 
It's totally true. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I think you know me hopefully well enough to know that I'm teasing. Sure. Because it's, I mean, you know, it's one of the things that, it was one of the early projects when I started working with Sandy Metz on was stickers. Like it was a really, we spent a lot of time on stickers. Yeah. And it was, and they're really fun. So uh, well, I, I, I just, I just love giving like the diesel stickers. I just really wanted a sticker. I felt, I felt inadequate yeah. for not having my own personal sticker. Well, there's something tangible about it too, right? A sticker. I feel like stickers have replaced business cards in. in, in yeah. You know <laughs> at what least I mean? at, at least at conferences. Right. Like I don't even. I'm trying to remember. I think I actually got a business card at RubyConf, and I was sort of like, I don't know what to do with this. It's not a sticker. I can't put it on my laptop. Right. I mean, it was great. I needed the information, but but I feel like they have kind of, especially at conferences, have replaced things. Yeah. I mean, I, I was I was very happy when I thought of the idea for the baby Ruby sticker. So that, because the diesel sticker was like cool, but not really a great personal icon for a Ruby conference. I love giving out the baby Ruby stickers to people at, uh, just like normal non-programming things though, like offering them to the people who work at the daycare we take Ruby to. <laughs> and they just think <laughs> I'm really, really weird. Right, so explain what the baby Ruby sticker is. Um, yeah, so, okay, so January I had, a, I had a daughter. Her name is Ruby. Yep. She was going to go to RailsConf because, uh, well, because my wife and I both want to go to RailsConf and we had a baby, so. Uh, and I was like, we should make a sticker for Ruby. It could be like just a little Ruby with a diaper on it. Uh, and then Tess was like, that is a stupid idea. Why would you do that? And then I paid a designer to do the design and then I showed her the design. She's like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. Please make, uh, <laughs> please make it be a thing. So, you know, I get, I gave him out and then we got an attendee badge for her as well. And I printed the conference t-shirt on, uh, onesies, uh, plural because there was a minimum order size of six for the thing that custom ink would ship to Canada. Um, cause I was living in Canada at the time. Yeah. Uh, so, so I handed out RailsConf onesies to anybody who had a child, but yeah, it was all just conference. Like it's like, I had a baby. I haven't seen any of you in months or talked to most people in months. I'm going to bring all kinds of fun baby swag. So good. Wait, and how old is Ruby now? Uh, her first birthday is Friday. Oh my gosh, that's right. It's coming up. Or, uh, no, tomorrow. Tomorrow's her first birthday. Tomorrow. Oh, well, happy birthday, little baby Ruby. So exciting, so fun. So you made the stickers to go to the to the to RailsConf. You know, yeah. I want to fast forward us a little bit to sure, how sure. did we get to this 1.0? that was just released in January or right. a few days ago, I should say, because this is going to come out probably, you know, in February or something. But I remember when we really switched to 1.0. I started thinking, like, this is going to be the last release before 1.0 a, a long time ago. I think the first time I ever mentioned it was um, Steve Kalabnik and I were at a uh, conference in Florida, um, a Ruby conference, uh, but Steve is, is, uh, is a member of the Rust core team. Yep. I know he's the person I, when I think of Rust, I always think of Steve. He is kind of the face of Rust and it's great. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's a fun, he's fun to troll now too, because he always, when he speaks at Ruby conferences, he's like, I mostly do Rust, but now, but you know, I still love Ruby um, because I have a tattoo of a Ruby on my body. And so now when I speak at Rust conferences, I'm like, sorry to one up you, Steve, but uh, I, I do mostly do Rust, but I still love Ruby more because I named my firstborn child after it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, but anyway, we were walking because I left a thing at a bar and uh, the, the night before, and so we were walking to go get it. And I remember just – I think that was the first time I was ever like, I should do 1.0 soon. And I mentioned it to him like, I think this is going to be the last release before 1.0. Uh, and I think that was 0.10 had just come out, <laughs> which was uh, a year ago. Oh, wow. So uh, there, there was more, more that happened. But basically, early on in the project, it was really nice because our user base was so small that the way I prioritized features for releases was somebody said, hey, I need this feature. And there were so few people doing that that I'm like, okay, I'll build that feature today. Mm -hmm. uh, and then eventually the volume increased and I could no longer do that. And so I think it was around the point where I could no longer just add features because people needed them that I started to consider all right, what, what do we need to do for 1.0? And, and at that point, I had specifically been thinking of it around the point, uh, uh, from the point of view of what isn't done that I expect will require breaking changes. Um, and then the other, the other thing, and I even remember explicitly mentioning this to Steve, uh, that was like a, a criteria for me, was finishing the crates.io port and not hating it. Now, keep in mind, again, even the, at this point, I'd gone from, like, I'm just going to write a little bit of, use this as a thing to write a little bit of diesel code in a real app. It now gone from, I'm going to port the entire thing over. I still had no intention of shipping the crates.io port. It was still just a tool for me. But I figure if, if crates.io, if I could write all of crates.io and diesel and not hate the code, that was going to be a, um, a reasonable indicator that the API is something that I'm not going to want to change. But then there are just certain features that are, from an API point of view, in addition, but require you know changes internally that are incompatible. So we started to focus on those sort of, uh, those sort of changes. And did you have a timeline when you wanted to get 1.0 out? Uh, yeah, and that timeline continuously moved. As it does. The, uh, date that we actually shipped on January 2nd, 2018 was, uh, a massive failure <laughs> because the final, the final date that I chose, I think I announced it in June or July of last year was that diesel 1.0 was going to happen this year. <laughs> and I missed it by two days. Oh my gosh. Two days. Yeah. Missing it by two days. Just couldn't, couldn't do it December 31st. So the plan was to ship December 30th, but just holidays. Well, actually, the original plan was um, I was going to try and release a beta in um, October and then ship the 1.0 final release on November 27th because I thought it would be cool to ship the 1.0 release on Diesel's second birthday. Mm. Even though I, I'd been working on Diesel for about, about half a year before it was released, I consider the date that we released 0 0.1, the first public release, I consider that to be its birthday. Oh, got it. Okay. Yep. Because the date that I, you know, did get in it is not nearly as significant. But anyway, then it got to be November, and I had just taken a hiatus because um, RubyConf was around that time, and, I, and uh, RustConf was around that time, and I was a little burnt out, so I just kind of took a little bit of a hiatus and then came back in. 0 0.99, which was going to be the beta for 1.0, but slightly different, um, had kind of stalled and hadn't been shipped, so... At this point, it was like late November, and we're like, well, okay, we need to ship 0.99 if we're going to do a release this year. Um, and I had declared a feature freeze at this point, too. Uh, the the, th the mm. thing that became the blocker, like 
is not substantially different than 0.16. Um, there are a few changes that we made for documentation purposes, but 0.16 uh, came out eight. What month is eight? Uh, August. August. Yeah, it came out at the end of August. Okay, there, there is some 0.99 did have some substantial changes where just I realized I hated an API very, very late in the, uh, in the cycle, but... Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, like other than this, these two specific APIs that we redid in 0.99, like 0.16 is not substantially different than 1.0, but documentation started to become more and more of an issue. And so we set several milestones or benchmarks, I guess, um, for like, we need to have better documentation before we release 1.0. Uh, and that actually has nothing to do with like from a technical point of view, um, but that's just because 1.0 by its very nature is a, is a large marketing event and we will see an, in, a, an increase in new users. Uh, it would be good if we didn't immediately lose them because our documentation is terrible. So we had mostly, mo uh, uh, like a, a most, mostly feature freeze since August, even before that really, for, for most of this year, when we realized we wanted to ship 1.0, you know, in the foreseeable future, it became any feature request that came in or pull request that came in, if it was something that could be done after 1.0 backwards compatibly and wasn't a bug, uh, it, it would explicitly be deprioritized. Uh, oh, and then, and then eventually it became in October, it was there, there are no features. We will not accept anything that isn't documentation. Uh, and that was partially as like a, a meant to be an incentive of, hey, I would, we really need help with documentation. We don't need help with new features right now. Please help us with documentation instead. But it was also um, partially pra a practical thing as well, because if, if we're reviewing pull requests for things that aren't documentation, that takes bandwidth away from us writing documentation. Right, right, right. You definitely get into that, that sort of like cycle. Yeah. Um, but it is funny because like there are a bunch of features that I knew I knew 1.1 was going to be a very very quick release after 1.0 because I have a couple of ideas for features. I'm just like, oh, I really want to do that. That's gonna that's gonna fix this thing that people have been complaining about for so long. It's gonna be so much better. But I couldn't work on it because I declared a feature freeze. And I need to write docs instead, and it's been killing me to not be able to write features for Diesel for three months. Right. Oh, and I bet. Well, so now it's launched. You know, let's just talk real quickly here, wrap up with, like, what's the sort of, you know, 2018 plan? Or is there one? There isn't one. Um, you know, we know very specifically what's going to be in 1.1, which is almost done. There's open pull requests for all except for one item on the milestone. Um, it's going to take a while for the open pull request to get reviewed, but... Um, 1.1 was we knew back in October, November, what was going to be in 1.1. We don't have a roadmap for 1.2 yet. We're, we're now actually back to now soliciting our users. Hey, what is really missing for you? But we don't, we don't really have a roadmap at this point. Yeah, so your work, that's, that's part of 2018. We'll be at least beginning with a roadmap for 1.2. Yes. So I just want to end with one thing that I, I love to ask that I haven't, we haven't talked about yet. Um, so you were working on this on, on the side of a day job. Yeah. And about, I mean, like how many hours a week? I know that varies probably. Yeah, no, it varies, in, you know, very significantly. If you go look at the contributor graph, you can see huge spikes um, before major releases and then huge dips as uh, I moved to America or 
yeah. uh, conferences happen or just I don't feel like working on it. Um, certainly November and December, virtually 100% of my time that was not spent on my day job was spent working on documentation for diesel. Wow. I would sometimes take like one day off on the weekends, but, uh, I don't know, probably November, December specifically, it was probably upwards of 50 hours. I would, I would think I'm thinking, I'm just trying to do the math in my head of like an hour or so before work and then four or five hours a day after work, plus all of the weekends, like 12 hours on the weekends. I don't know that that I I it was a I I failed to galvanize the community around getting our documentation up to snuff to release 1.0, which was really disappointing to me because I did not feel that I was the the right the best person to be writing this documentation. Hmm. But um, I, unfortunately, I just I failed to to attract people to help with this, so it did end up falling uh mostly on me. The the core team did help quite a bit as well, of course, but um. But I really wanted to get a lot of uh, newer users, specifically people who were not familiar with Diesel, to be coming in, complaining about what was missing in the documentation, trying to figure it out, asking questions, and then documenting uh, from their perspective, because th those are the most effective docs. So, um, gosh, I have one last question that's probably unfair, given what you just said about there's no plans for 2018. I mean, you know, long term, do you always, you know, always think this will just be, you know, an open source community project? Like, do you have any bigger, longer term plans? Or are you just sort of open to let it see what it becomes? I'm just going to do whatever the community needs from it. It's, it's in a reasonable place. There are some longer term features that I want to do that will require a 2.0 release. So I'm not actively working on those. Although, yeah. but they, you know, they're the features that I'm thinking about when I'm in the shower. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, there are language changes that will help Diesel. That's one thing that I'm going to be wor uh, working a lot on is pushing for changes in the language that improve the user experience with our library. There's some tangentially related things like some tooling to help fix and catch common mistakes, uh, which the compiler catches them, but it catches them in a way that it tells you what from a Rust language point of view is wrong. And not a, that's not necessarily the most helpful thing for a, okay, but what did I do wrong and how do I fix it? So I want to build some tooling around that. So there's a lot of stuff like that that I have more concrete plans for, but this is very much one of the, the most interesting pieces of working on this project has been watching it grow to the point where it can survive without me. Hmm. You know, it's now at the point, there's a core team, they do a great job and when I disappear for a couple of months, which has happened now multiple times, the project runs itself. And, and, and that's really great because you hear about a lot of projects that where, you know, that, that, that can't happen, right? Like how right. do you continue keep think, make it sustainable so that the community is such a huge question, I think, in open source. We should probably, I don't think we ever mentioned this explicitly too. I work on open source full time. So open source sustainability is very much a thing that is at the forefront of my mind. Well, and I love talking about it. We've had several guests talk about it. I think it's really interesting and, and fascinating that that's uh, obviously with your, you know, your interest in that, that you built that, that in as soon as you could. 
right? Yeah. The, the sustainability aspect. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a big difference in the governance of projects where it's just like somebody who made a thing that was useful and it grew bigger than they intended it to versus somebody with experience in, in running these projects. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show and um, sharing more about this. I'm excited to, to see where the community uh, takes it. So thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.